All right, everyone. Uh, we are live. We've got Santi coming from his parents' basement. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> how are you doing, Santi? I'm doing great. Yeah, I've been I've been uh, visiting my my family uh, down in Mexico, and I've been here for a few weeks. And it, in true crypto fashion, I'm literally living in my parents' basement. Uh, and so, uh, part of the good thing of visiting them is I, I do have some of my stuff here. Uh, so old crypto memorabilia and merch. And this this shirt is one of my true coveted possessions, which is DefCon Five uh, shirt. Ooh. Is that, is that when you uh, is that when you met? Met Stani for the first time. Do I remember yeah, that? I think people have heard me say, "Yeah, that's right." Yeah. I stumped. This is twenty twenty nineteen, I think twenty nineteen, and this was the last DevCon before COVID hit. Um, and then, and I remember seeing the booth. You know, we're still in kind of like dormant prices. Crypto wasn't doing much, um, and I remember seeing the the Ave booth. Uh, Lend, I guess at the time was known, and I just thought their gear was their merch, like the little funky ghost was really nice so that captivated my attention and then i went out and ended up talking to stani and then the rest really is history um i ended up joining parify reached out to stani really convinced him to work with us and then DeFi just kind of took the world by storm and everything after that was a blur but uh yeah it's uh it's interesting how you never know which conferences are going to be good or not but that one definitely for me was very special you know the real takeaway there though the real takeaway what? is you gotta is you gotta have good swag i remember so we had yeah, absolutely at uh at, at permissionless which by the way i think permissionless tickets either just went up or about are about to go up but we just launched new speakers hold on i actually haven't even seen hold on i'm about to plug all right check out these the first speaker lineup we got zaki from uh from sommelier that talking about cosmos we've got justin drake ETH Foundation. We've got uh, Mary, the CEO at Uniswap. Eric Voorhees, uh, Stani is speaking. Kevin Iwaki, mm-hmm. Meltem, Ben Foreman, Tarun, Colleen Sullivan, Hasu, Hasib, uh, Michalo, the Polygon co-founder, Ben Jones at Optimism, mm-hmm. Vanessa um, from Aglo Ventures. It's a good squad. Good lineup. Shout out to the Blockwatch yeah, team. So there, there's, there's nice. the Permissionless plug. But I remember at Permissionless, uh, Dune had these socks that they give away, but they treat mm. socks like really, um, it's like coveted swag. And I think they do like mm-hmm. unique swag drops at different conferences. I'm pretty sure is how they do it. And actually, if you go on the Dune site, they uh, they have a lookbook for all their best swag. And I love looking at it because wow. I'm like, oh, that's just like attention to detail and caring about things that like on a balance sheet don't necessarily matter, but get your community fired up. Yeah, definitely. It's not the most so. expensive swag. It's, it's sometimes just a really cool, funky swag. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, what's the best conference you've ever been to? Crypto or just generally? Uh, you tell me. Well, crypto I guess generally or both. Well, crypto pretty up there. I think Def, this Defcon was was great from meeting people, but it was terrible from an organization standpoint. Like, think about this. Hmm. It was true to Ethereum like at ETH the time Denver. that. Well, Denver is really good. I actually haven't been to that one. Um, but uh, this one was gr- great quality because it was a time where like we were talking about scalability and, you know, it was a huge discussion around that. And so a lot of the talks were high quality. But now imagine that we were talking about scalability and congestion in the Ethereum network. The conference itself, you had one or two elevators, 
for the entire conference, which were incredibly slow. And so it was just like very true to, it was just funny because we were all complaining about the same thing, which is this, of, of course, like, you know, you talk about like bottlenecks and congestion and like the conference itself is like a clusterfuck. And so, um, yeah. And, and of course I love Japan. Osaka was just, uh, it's just a great place. So that one was probably one of the best. Um, I've heard, I was going to go, but the, um, uh, zero, what is it? Uh, Zcash's conference. Uh, the first one was in Toronto and then in Croatia, but the first one was very good. Um, like, and I think you can listen to some of the, some of the talks, like much smaller, really high quality, technical, but really high quality. What, what's yours? I mean, if I don't plug a Blockworks event, uh, I, think I'm, I think I'm out of my job. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, permissionless is we. So we've hosted DAS for years, right? But permissionless was like another. I think permissionless. I'm I'm as biased as you can get, but permissionless was like on another level of a conference that I don't think any crypto conference has been able to achieve. Uh, but I also do think some of the like more grassroots events, like I would give a huge shout out to yeah, DevCon and ETH Denver are the two most like mm-hmm. crypto native events. Uh, I think they can use some operational support. Um, but yeah, like in terms of content and uh, kind of seeing what's coming in the next like eight to 18 months from now, I think those two events do a really good job. So what I had heard, because I missed permissionless, but what I'd heard was that you guys, the diversity of the crowd was there because you had a lot of crypto natives, a lot of crypto projects, but also kind of institutions and people coming down from New York and San Francisco and other places to like meet a lot of these people. So it was just a good gathering, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think it's the largest crypto native conference. Like I I think probably Coindesk uh, consensus is probably a larger event, but that's like, I wouldn't say it's as crypto native. Um, Anywho, prices are ripping. We got the the January effect is in full order. Um, January effect, by the way, for, I, I don't think this is just a crypto thing, but I think markets in general, uh, basically, tax, you have tax loss harvesting in December, followed by repurchasing in the new year, usually leads to positive price action. So just looking at the markets today, Lido's up almost 100% on the year. Solana, ripping up 70%. Uh, ETH is up like 10 to 15%. Bitcoin's up like 5%. Uh, if you look at funding rates, funding rates across most of the major tokens have increased this year, marking what like could be a change in sentiment from, from perps traders. We just found $5 billion of uh, tokens from FTX who originally thought they only had 1 billion that they could find. Funny how that stuff turns out. Um, yeah, market caps back above 900 billion. We're looking good. We're looking good. How you feeling? Obviously, <laughs> it, it's 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 nice to see some life in the market and some, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, like, uh, who am I kidding? Of course, it's great to see, you know, a lot of the market up. Um, interesting some of these narratives informing really quickly um but uh but yeah i think uh you know what's not what's not to love when you you see across your portfolio you know in the green so uh as someone you know some of these chats are just pure entertainment you know like you start getting like a lot of these groups just start coming back to life. And oh yeah, we're back. A lot of G, a lot of GMs in the chats today. A lot of like, yeah, it's like oh, sorry, been, been MIA <laughs> for last month. Like, you know, how are you doing guys? Like, so that, and then, and then one, one person said, so, so meat is back on the table, you know, like not just ramen. And so I don't know. I just love the banter in some of these groups. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's great. 
Yeah. Uh, all right. So here's uh, by the way, I, I would not be pulling out the leverage lungs right now. I know there's some excitement, but uh, <laughs> might be short lived. Yeah. So here, here here's I mean, to be I'm... fair. Go ahead. Well, anyway, no, I was just saying to be fair, like, you know, you still have like macro in the front seat and you have, you know, a lot of people like the, the world bank, like declaring that this year is going to be a recession across the board consensus and people, the big question that I am starting to get asked is, so what happens if equity markets continue to go down? What does that do to crypto? And like everyone's kind of focused on that. So you know, one week of price act, positive price action is, is, is a small data point, but I wouldn't, uh, as you said, I wouldn't, uh, the practical advice is, uh, yeah, you probably shouldn't go like 10 X levered or, or do just leverage kids. That usually doesn't end well. Yeah. So here's what I want to talk about today. We've got the, we've got this battle between, uh, Gemini and, and DCG going on really kind of this pu- kind of fun public debate between or or not a debate, but battle between billionaires with, uh, Cameron Winklevoss representing the left corner and Barry Silbert representing the right corner. So I want to talk about that. Um, FTX recovery, spend a little bit of time on that. Um, maybe a little more cri- uh, crypto native conversations, LSDs in Shanghai. It's on track, so we can talk about that. Um, some interesting announcements like Coinbase did layoffs. Avalanche partnered with uh, AWS. Um, Ondo Finance uh, brought treasuries on chain, I think it was. So where do you want to start? You want to start with Gemini? Yeah, let's start. Cool. Reminder of the situation for folks who have not been paying attention. Um Basically, Gemini lent uh, lent almost a billion dollars of funds from over three hundred thousand users to Genesis uh, from the Gemini Earn program. That capital has been frozen for almost two months now. Um, there was there's there there's been two letters on Twitter. So there's a first letter from Cameron Winklevoss, kind of explaining the situation. The second he and Cameron just published his second open letter on Twitter this week, uh, basically addressing the board of DCG, demanding that Barry Silbert be let go and replaced as CEO. There are a couple interesting points in the letter. The first is that Genesis was left with a uh, $1.2 billion hole after the collateral liquidation from a loan that they made to 3AC for $2.36 billion. Um, also, according to Cameron, Genesis only accepted, this is his claim. This is, I don't, I don't know if you can find facts to back this up, but Cameron claims that uh, Genesis only accepted this kind of subpar collateral loan because 3AC was using the borrowed money to actually ape into, GB, into the GBTC spread trade, right? Increasing the AUM and their sister company, Grayscale's profits. Um, he also kind of talks about just like continues on this GBTC trade, um, explaining that as GBTC switched from a premium to uh, premium to NAV to a discount, Genesis continued to lend to Three Arrows with GBTC as collateral to mitigate it from being sold on the open market and furthering the gap. Uh, DCG announced it would assume Genesis's liability, but in reality offered a 10-year promissory note with a 1% interest, which did not help fill the hole. Uh, Barry, so that was released at like 8 a.m. And then Barry returned with a letter to shareholders. I don't know if you read that later in the afternoon. It was kind of bear market hopium. It didn't have like any... It was just like, well, yeah, we'll get through this. Uh, tr- trust me. Um, what do you, what do you make of this situation? Well, I don't have any particular like um, insight um, into the situation other than what's being publicly discussed between these two folks. But uh, the fact that Barry is what I'm reading into it is Barry's being, you know, uh, at this point, lawyers have taken over the communications of both. 
parties. Barry historically has been a, someone who's tweeted uh, at will, if you will. Like he's, he's just, you know, tweets like we just acquired a massive bag of Zcash and, you know, it's going to be a big week. And like when you look at like the, a change in the way that he's tweeted, uh, I think is pretty indicative of the situation of how dire it is. And, and you know, um, lawyers are probably like heavily, uh, you know, monitoring what he's tweeting now. Um, and, and also the, the language that Cam- Cameron's letter had, if you look at the prior one versus this one is, I think it's pretty indicative. Uh, I mean, not only in the, in the last one, he used certain like keywords, uh, and there's some good tweet, like threads of, of like lawyers kind of dissecting like some of these reminder folks that, you know, some of the keywords are, have like a very clear, like, um, I guess legal, uh, implications, uh, if you will. And in this case, he, he he didn't really hold back. I mean, he just sort of said this is fraud, and Barry should step down. And um, I think uh, I tend to I tend to believe more of the uh, uh, I mean the the amount of information and, and kind of precision that the letter of Cameron had, I think, was pretty insightful to see for the first time. Um, but uh, but yeah, I don't know where this ends. I mean, we've talked about this in prior episodes. Um, of of sort of a coordinated action between uh, creditors and kind of trying to resolve that situation. There was another um, Genesis counterparty. I think it was an exchange that uh, refused their plan for repayment. That was also announced this week or in the last couple of days. And so I would be really interested to understand what that was to extend, um, you know, and, 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 and and how that is being worked out because at the moment it just seems like it's pretty uh dispersed i mean there's a number of creditors i don't know the number but it, you got to believe it's it's in the, um um you know i don't know 20 40 50 100 um uh, and i'm not sure how coordinated they are but i think it would be probably interesting to see how that's shaping up yeah we talked a lot about this in the episode with uh Fubar. yeah um I mean, so I think we knew that this was happening and like Genesis was lending to three arrows. It's just funny to see uh, Cameron lay it out like this because when you actually just zoom out, Ge- I mean, Genesis, it's pretty bad risk return trade here, right? So like Genesis was lending money to three arrows so that three arrows could recursively buy Bitcoin, swap it for GBTC, post the GBTC as collateral with Genesis to buy more Bitcoin and swap it for more GBTC, which... You know, obviously pretty risky. Three arrows was on the wrong end of that trade and blew up. But it also left Genesis with kind of all of the downside of this GBTC ARB and none of the upside, right? Like they're squeaking out, what, 5% or something and lending to a really risky borrower. So I don't know, just like seeing Cameron lay out the trade like that, I'm like, man, you this was not, you were taking a pretty zero sum trade and turning it into what quickly obviously became a negative sum trade. So I don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, but I don't know if you read Byron's newsletter yeah. this week, but he had a good point on like thinking in probabilities. And it seems like DCG kind of, and Genesis kind of put this like hundred percent probability on Bitcoin continuing to trend higher uh, because this, it all unraveled really quickly. But anyways, seeing Cameron lay it out like this, I was like, man, that was a pretty poor risk reward trade for Genesis here. Yeah. Uh, Cause reminder folks, I mean, most of my understanding is most of the, um, cash flow, most of the profitability of DCG comes from Grayscale, 
which is the management fees that they're charging on these products like GBTC, THE, and some of the other um, trusts. And so from that perspective, you almost wonder, like, they just kind of, melt, you know, everything was at the focus was let's just continue to milk this business and at all costs. And it sounds like they, uh, they were willing to, from the very, not the very beginning, but for a while now, just continue to, you know, use Genesis as, as just part of that objective at all costs, it seems. Yeah. And so kind of at this point from a probabilistic standpoint is they're probably, you know, we were having this discussion in the prior episode, which is, are they going to let Genesis go and how much value is there in Genesis? And I think uh, it's starting to probably uh, become clear by the day that they're willing to let just Genesis go. And, and the real focus here is protecting at all costs grayscale because yeah. that continues to be, I, I read recently, they're obviously now looking to the probably divest some of their venture portfolio, which is vast. I mean, it is, I would okay, probably. It's vast. I, it's, it's vast. All right. So it's vast. They have more than 200 investments, biggest exchange, like exchanges, banks, custodians, 35 yeah. different countries they've invested in. The Financial Times reported that the total value of DCG's venture portfolio is $500 million. $500 million. That, that, is, that is so wildly off by like an order of magnitude there. Yeah. You would have thought it would be much larger. Far larger. I mean, mm-hmm. let me read you what some was of the FTX. FTX Ventures was much, uh, you know, larger. Okay, first, first of all, yeah. I mean, they've been investing. Let me just read you some of their investments. They have substantial stakes in Chainalysis, BitGo, Blockchain.com, Brave Browser, Circle, Coinbase, Coinmetrics, Dune, The Graph, Silvergate, Shapeshift, Ledger, Kraken, Paxos, Fireblocks, Etherscan, I think, Wire, although Wire is now a zero. Like the list goes on. I mean, mm-hmm. nearly every company, it's just like DCG is just like an automatic into their cap table. They're never leading these rounds though. They're and never leading. Hugs. They don't lead. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. they do pretty early deals too. Um, I just think that's wildly. I mean, what, what would you, if you had to put a number on it, what do you think? Uh, well, this goes, into, this goes into the, 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 I'm not sure if that number is deployed capital or mark to market in some way, shape or form, because if they're trying to assess the current value of that portfolio, then, you know, based on valuation methodologies and illiquidity discounts, then maybe you get to 500. Like if you're applying a very steep illiquidity discount uh, on lock tokens or some like illiquid positions, then maybe that's Hmm. how you get to 500. Um. Or maybe that's just deployed capital. Like they've invested 500 million, which seems reasonable in my mind. Like that's still a lot of money to deploy in early stage series, you know, C and A, B, um, you know, over the years, uh, it's probably correct. I think. Hmm. All right. All right. I might be wrong there, but feels low for me. Like, feels low to me. Again, like the, the key is like, you never are marking a, say that you invested in, I don't know, the graph in some of the earlier rounds. And then the token launches, you're still locked for like a year at least. And so you can't, uh, you can't just say, oh, look, this is, you're not marking that position mark to market because it's illiquid and locked. And so you're applying, at least this is what I think you should do is you're applying a, a pretty hefty discount to that position, like upwards of 50, 60, 70, up to 90%. 
because uh, some of these tokens have low float. And so, yeah. you know, yeah. on paper, you would say, wow, they made a killing on the graph, but they haven't really, like, as an example. Hmm. Okay. All right. I might be wrong there. Um, let's get into FTX. So, yeah. There was an announcement uh, by leadership. I think it was the second to last, the week before Christmas. I think it was like December 19th or 20th that they had, that, that they could only find a billion dollars. And I think a lot of us on the other end were like, only a billion? Like that feels small. I thought you had 8 billion. Um, now that's across their venture portfolio and illiquid tokens and stuff. But okay, well, where's the rest of the 7 billion? Uh, it just came out that FTX has now found Five billion, which is much closer to the number that both Sam and the guy who took over, what, whatever his name is, Ray, I think it is. They've both said the number, the the total numbers around eight billion that FTX has. Now they've located. Here's here's the quote: We have located over five billion of cash, liquid crypto, liquid investment securities measured at petition date value. It does not ascribe any value to holdings of dozens of illiquid crypto tokens, where our holdings are so large relative to the total supply of our positions uh, that we cannot, they cannot be sold without substantially affecting the market for the token. So I would say this is a good announcement. This is a pretty positive announcement that we've, we've, we've located more of the money. So it's good to see this. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, I think there's, uh, there, I was not sure there's some, dis there's some trading or like they're pegging like the price of recovery. Uh, I think there's a market for that and it's trading at like 17 cents on the dollar. I think it yeah. went all the way down to eight, 10. Um, Wait, explain and, that to me. There's 10 cents on the dollar for what? Presumably, uh, if you have, if you're owed capital and it's like money there, uh, you could sell your position or at least people are pricing it this way in terms of how much you're going to recover for every dollar that you have stuck in FTX. And at the moment it's, it's being priced at like 17 cents. Yeah. Um, so if you have a hundred dollars, you're going to get, you know, 17 back. Yeah. Uh, now I think for the, which is, which is people are saying it was probably lower than that. Like it got all the way down to eight, eight cents. Um, and like eight cents for every dollar, uh, not eight cents for a hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, the interesting thing is like, you're comparing it. I think one of the interesting things like in that I didn't know, but I learned during this process is that um, the Madoff trustees, I think ended up recovering years, like 10 years later, like 75 cents. I think you were the one that said this, like 75, 85 cents on the, on the dollar, which is pretty good. Um, I mean, of course it took, you know, time value money and opportunity costs, but still it's, it's fairly good, I guess. Um, you know, considering even Mal Gox, People that have that were affected by Mongox haven't even seen a single Bitcoin back, and so uh, you know this is is fairly positive if you're getting some capital back. And and I wonder how much time that's going to take, but uh, but yeah, it's it's looking a little bit more uh, promising than what it initially started. Yeah. To, some people are saying. So I just looked up the five million or five billion of what they're saying is worth five billion. Uh, now I'm not so positive on this. Let me read it to you. 700 million of Solana. Most of that is locked. 575 million of FTT. 371 of MAPS. 127 of Oxy. 90 million of Rap Bitcoin. 82 million of Bona. And about 500 million in random other like SPL tokens. 
That is not a liquid five billion. That is, uh, I don't know who's taking no, five hundred and seventy five million off the market right now. Yeah. Uh, no. No. The the uh, we talked about this in a great episode with uh, uh, on the terror situation. One of the more interesting things that you got to think about is when whenever you're thinking about like, it, say you have a, a large position in a particular project, like. You can't take spot and then multiply by the number of tokens you have. It's like, what is the transacted value that you can actually exit right. this position in a graceful manner? And that that is more, uh, as you said, like you can't really sell some of these random tokens and <laughs> and get that uh, principle, like you know, that amount back. And so, um, yeah. Um, did you read Sam's Substack? I was trying to get through it. Uh, I assume you did. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I did. I, uh, I want, I want to save you guys the, uh, the hassle of reading it. Cause you should not go read. You should not spend another second, uh, reading what Sam has to say. So here, here's some of the takeaways. Uh, basically when the, when the bankruptcy was filed FTX, there was a decent bit of talk about like FTX us. So FTX us had excess liquidity, which is above like what that means is like above one-to-one -one coverage of customer assets, um, in the, uh, in the range of like, I think it was 350 million, they said that F he said that FTX US held I think it was like 500 million in customer asset. Was, I forget if the number is 350 or 500. Also said that FTX US was completely solvent with a significant buffer. I think what he was trying to show by talking about FTX US was that um, that FTX US would have been fine if it didn't get looped into all of this. That they could have basically just severed FTX US like the day all this went down and like pushed FTX US to the side, FTX US would have been totally fine, but FTX, the, the normal FTX would have gone down. I think that's what he was trying to show by doing that. Um, he also mentioned FTX trading had about 8 billion in assets when Ray took over. That's like in the ballpark of, of what the Ray and his team have said. Um, so that was good. A lot of rehashing of like how and why Alameda went under. They're just another domino, victim of crypto winter. This is a CZPR campaign. This all actually would have been fine if, but like I got the like the lawyers pushed me out. I had a plan to to fix this. Uh, he said that no funds were stolen. This is where it got kind of wild. It's like no funds were stolen. Um, he's like we had a clean gap audit for 2020 and 2021. He's like billions in funding offers were coming in when Ray took over. That's where I was like, all right, all right, buddy, you should you should probably sit down here. So. Uh, yeah, I think there's still wow. this like glaring omission in from both Sam and from Ray, which is that there's no indication of what the total customer deposits at FTX trading were. So while the mm -hmm. there are there are estimates of assets that seem to be kind of coalescing around the eight to ten billion dollar number, we we still really don't know the size of the hole. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Speaking of. Uh... I'm not sure if we're going to talk about this, but a few hours ago, it was just announced that Nexo's offices in Bulgaria and Sofia, the capital city, got raided uh, oh, by the police say. there. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah, well, I mean, look, uh, Nexo came out with a communication. Apparently, it's tied. The investigation has been going on for a couple months, and um, you know, Nexo employed over 30 like compliance folks, and uh, apparently, it's tied to some sort of breaching of KYC ML, like sanction like uh, laws and so uh yeah they're being investigated now i will just say when something like this comes out and the like an agency is like oh we're investigating because of kyc aml oftentimes that's not the reason the it's like mm -hmm. a that's their door in they're like 
they need a reason to investigate a company. So they'll be like, uh, they probably found that they broke a KYC AML thing. So they're like, boom, that's our reason to go look under the hood. Um, I see. Um, like it's I'm just like, to, it's, it's probably the easiest way to get a search warrant. Look, I don't know what's going on with Nexo. Let me just say this. BlockFi is down. Genesis is down. Every single other competitor who runs a business just like Nexo is down. They continued offering like not just like 3% yields or 5% yields, but these like ludicrous 8 to 12% yields until like a month or two ago. So I don't know anything. I never, I, I hope that Nexo is fine. I hope that the, especially the users and customers of Nexo are fine. If you still have money on Nexo, I'd, I'd probably recommend you, you know, you, you kind of keep that stuff safe. But um, I'm just skeptical of like, how can one business only one business make it and every single other one of your competitors fail. Uh, that's, mm -hmm. I'm just questioning yeah, that. Yeah. Let me ask you like a, like take a pause and I'll ask you a question because this goes back to what you asked me at the very beginning, like how you are feeling generally about crypto, but like how hard has it been for you to see all of this go down and like, have you lost faith a in crypto B of the people working in crypto um, and how does that compare to like, there have always been like scams, not just in crypto. You just see them more visibly in crypto, I think. Um, but has, how hard has it been to just see the amount of like destruction and I guess just, just felt like, you know, every single poster child of crypto that was glorified by the media is some way, shape or form just got too caught up and, and too greedy and has blown up. Hmm. Let's see. I think does I, that weigh down on you, your team morale? No. So no. So no. 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 It does. It doesn't weigh down on me at all. Actually, it doesn't. Like I don't. Um, I think there's actually a feeling of embarrassment. There's not a feeling of disheartenment. I'm not disheart. I'm not. Um, I think there's an initial feeling of like actually anger and like being really pissed off with folks like. Doe and Mashinsky and uh, Sue, Sam, Sam, the, like those folks, like an initial feeling of like pissed off and, and anger because you and I know so many people who lost so much money, right? Like we have, we've invested in companies yeah. and they've gotten hurt. Like we have, I have friends who, you know, came into the industry at the exact same time as me. They lost 99% of the crypto that they have. And they're, I'm getting messages being like, look, I don't really know what the last six years of of my life were for like, I don't have anything that I've all the, all the things I've built up over the last six years, the company I've built and the people, the company I worked at that I helped build and the, the money that I've made, I have none of it. So what was I just doing with, so that's really, really upsetting to see. Um, and then it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing when I'm at like a dinner and I've been, I'm the crypto person, obviously. And I've been talking about these great companies and then the what the people see in the headlines is like FTX and, and BlockFi and Genesis and DCG and these billionaires fighting on Twitter. It looks like a joke. It looks like a joke. But what what overpowers all of that by an order of magnitude is seeing things like the Friday Ethereum all core devs call talking about the Shanghai upgrade being on track for a March activation and talking to Chow about the future of like wallets and seeing brands continuing to push into crypto and having that call with Eigenlayer that you and I were on, um, mm -hmm. just being like, look, I don't know if Eigenlayer is going to make it, but like what, but 
I don't have conviction there, but like just seeing that there are amazing founders and builders building this stuff. And yeah, that optimism, like way overpowers and overweights this feeling of like disenchantment and embarrassment. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way. Uh, it, it's sometimes hard uh, to see the, how many people have been affected this time and the sheer like no, number of wealth destruction, I guess. But uh, I think it's different than price going down. It's a whole new game where you have been defrauded. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. But, uh, but no, I agree with you. I also think that every industry, I think reading history helps with this. Like reading about early days of the railroad industry, reading about the early days of the internet, right? And then like in the 90s, uh, when the internet was starting to get like, become more corporate, uh, reading about the early days of like the oil industry, like there were pretty like raging scams in all of these industries and these huge frauds, but less money associated with it because those industries were like, basically there was a harder asset and the money was one step removed. So like you have oil, Mm-hmm. Oil's not directly money, but it, but it, so the money is one step removed or like railroad, same thing, a lot of money, but like ra- the railroad's not a money, even the internet, the core asset of the internet is information and money is one step removed. The core asset inside of crypto is money. So when you have a fraud, it like it, money touches everything in crypto. So, um, yeah, these fraud people end up like, there's just more money at risk earlier on in an industry. So every industry this early on has frauds, but because this is a mm-hmm. money-driven yeah. industry. Yeah. So anyways. I think uh, my last takeaway from this is like, if you look at most of the crypto collapses, nine out of 10 or all of them, have been a rejection of the old system trying to work within the confines of what is crypto. Um, you know, you look at businesses that were non-transparent, that were heavily centralized, that had, you know, backdoors and, you know, that's not the ethos. That's not crypto. That's a crypto service provider. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's pretty, I think we'll, we'll be very symbolic. We'll look back and say, yeah, this is a time where we try to implement old practices that go counter to the ethos of decentralization of what crypto really stands for, of self-custodying your assets, of managing um, and being in control and fully transparent, smart contracts that execute a certain logic that you're you kind of you're just trusting what is in the code and not necessarily where you're depositing and whoever's custodying your assets. And I think uh, you know, in many ways, if this industry is really going to grow by orders of magnitude, then you better off happen it now. And we learn this kind of lesson, which I think has been. More and more, I think people, even in traditional mainstream media and people are starting to appreciate what decentralization actually means uh, and putting a finer point on that. So I think that's the kind of the positive of all this, which which I think is uh, will set us up nice, nicely for continued growth over the years. Um, yeah. You know, Here, here's where I really would be, like build. Yeah. Here, here's where I would be disheartened, Santi, is if Ave went down or Maker failed to continue producing dye or uniswap couldn't operate in the u.s or, or like uh if actually that could happen but like if uniswap went down or something like that like that then mm-hmm. then i'm like oh man i i don't trust i did i don't trust the block and nexos of the world but you know i do trust ave and then i, I don't shoot 
well, now we can't trust Ave. It's, well, then it's like, okay, well, what are we, what are we doing here? So anyways. Well, I, I guess the, the, the cynic could say, hey, listen, there's been like 5 billion of hacks, or like, I think it's between 4 or 5 billion of hacks. Uh, a lot of them happened last year. You know, the Ronan Bridge hack was 600 million and uh, a few others that were, you know, uh, and so, you know, that, that to me is where I t- tend to focus a lot of my attention, which is, hey, we, we really need to get security and, and come up with better standards, services that can help people. Uh, just if everyone's going to move on chain, if there's a version of this world where that happens, then we yeah. need to have better uh, solutions in place. So agree. But the something like the Ronin hack was like those bridges were like six months old or like 12 months old max. And that's when I'm like, right. I know what it's like to build a startup that's like six six months after launch. It is a total shit show. Um, so it's like, that's where I'm, that's where I'm going to in crypto in every other world, every other industry, every point in history, when you have a startup that's six months old, if something goes wrong, something fails, a product breaks, maybe people have to get laid off something, but you don't lose money necessarily. Like it's not directly losing money in this situation. If a bridge goes down, yeah, you could lose a hundred, there's a hundred million on the bridge, but like crypto is weird in that way. So yeah, 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 we could probably do a better job of like not putting half a billion onto something that's a year old. So let's talk about something optimistic though, which is um, mm-hmm. yeah. the Friday ETH all core devs call. Um, that gave us further evidence that the Shanghai upgrade is on track for a March activation, which is super exciting. Um, basically Shanghai and in, in like TLDR on Shanghai is that it allows withdrawals from the Ethan, uh, the Ethan, the ETH, uh, Ethereum beacon chain. Um, and I think the the like why behind this event is everyone's looking at how much basically about what's going to happen with with staking, right? Like, given that there's a large amount of ETH that will become liquid, like what basically happens with withdrawals? Um, is there going to be short term sell pressure? There's there's two there's two ways this could go, right? There's either going to be like short term sell pressure, um, but a greater incentive to stake. There's either going to be like less money staked, or everyone's going to say. Oh crap! Now this is liquid. Let me let me stake more assets. So I'm I'm really curious to hear what I don't know if you have a take on this yet, but do you think this will in the short term like drive more amount of staking, less staking? What do you think here? Um, I mean, it's difficult to. I can't pretend to understand where crypto is going to be in the short term, but I think it's quite positive to finally. It's another further step in this transition to proof of work and. Uh, freeing up like the locked the ETH deposits in the beacon chain, um, and then you have a. I think it net very positive. Um, what it will do in the short term, TBD. I've, I've seen some analysis that you know now you're going to have a true staking yield, which might be quite interesting how that dynamic plays out. Uh, one of the things that I would be looking at is the amount of ETH staked uh, and the yield, and relative to other opportunities that you can get. In within crypto and then outside of crypto, um, for instance, you know people are comparing the staking yield with treasuries, and you know it's it's kind of a irrelevant comparison. It's not, but it's 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 uh, you probably shouldn't, shouldn't be comparing it to a risk free rate. But um, but yeah, it's, I, I think it will drive probably now that you have like a more liquid market um, and more fluid uh, staking and unstaking. I think. Uh, it is it is very positive for just uh, Ethereum's network, um, and so yeah, 
I mean, you could be in a situation where a lot of the ETH continues to be staked and the float will combine with the deflationary pressures that you probably have seen uh, um, just creates a situation where there's far less ETH uh, circulating and that is not being staked, which uh, for every incremental dollar that comes into the space is just like the sensitivity. Uh, so you might have just a more volatile asset, you know what I mean? Um, so that love, could create uh, short-term I, volatility. I love this Ryan Watkins tweet. Uh, he said, it's undeniable that Ethereum upgrades and innovation cycles are the leading drivers of crypto markets now, far more than Bitcoin halvings. If you're not paying attention to Ethereum, you'll have a hard time understanding where we're going. And as more and more of the industry gets built on top of Ethereum, um, and I, ju I just think like that becomes the driver. It's going to be interesting. You and I have talked about this, I think, offline, but Bitcoin halving is, has always been the big driver, right? It's like always one of the big things that ends up kicking off this usually a delayed bull market, maybe six to 12 months later. But I think that this could be, uh, I think, I think he's got a point I mean, here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's uh, one is just like, Oh, like it's, it's a, so what event? The other one is more, far more interesting from an yeah. innovation perspective. Also, ah, I think we've been ragging on Bitcoin too much recently. We're gonna, we'll, we'll give it a break in this episode. Well, no, I, I think you're going to say like the amount of tweets just flipped, right? Uh, you know, there's a great chart showing a uh, number of tweets, Bitcoin relative to Ethereum. It's flipped uh, recently. I think it's the first time it's actually crossed. And there are more uh, there are more ETH related tweets than there are Bitcoin. And so, uh, again, I'm not yeah. like entirely sure how the calculation goes behind the scenes. Uh, but not surprising, right? That there's just so much to talk about in Ethereum land uh, and everything yeah. going on in the ecosystem relative to what's going on in Bitcoin. Yeah. Not to dismiss anything that's going yeah. on in Bitcoin. We uh some of the some of the updates to liquid staking are a little out of my realm of understanding, honestly. Like there was a like Rocket Pool just added Rocket Pool's another liquid staking uh derivative provider. They just added Coinbase Ventures to their ODAO. My understanding of the ODAO is like it's a bunch of community members who run these special Oracle nodes that transmit data from the beacon mm -hmm. chain to ETH1 in order for the protocol to function properly and, and safely. Some of that stuff is definitely out of my league of understanding. So actually, uh, shout out to our producer, Garrett. Uh, he's lining up a couple of liquid staking episodes where we're going to get a little deeper instead of you and you and me pontificating on things that I at least don't fully, I'm not fully able to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was running a validator um, way back in the day uh, when Tesla launched and a few others. Yeah. yeah. You were, you we were a Tesla like validator? A, a baker. A baker. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then, yeah, that got me thinking uh, into like how liquid staking derivatives were going to, this was like three years ago, more, more than three years ago. When, um, yeah, when, when did you spin up your first, uh, when, when did you start doing this? Uh, end of 2018, uh, 2019. Um, hmm. We try to, me and a couple other uh, folks that I know in the, in the space, um, we didn't feel comfortable delegating. And so we wanted to spin up our own. Um, and that got us into a pretty interesting journey thinking about like the regulatory implications of staking versus mining. And, um, and w one of the best things that came out of that was the proof of stake Alliance, which Evan, who then ended up going to buy some trails and then, um, now got acquired by Coinbase, uh, that organization really to advocate for staking and clarity on the tax side of things on the kind of money transmitter side of things. Um, 
yeah, it was pretty interesting. Uh, back then it was my, like back then it was like a few people thinking, talking about it, but uh, we were just too early in the game. Uh, a lot of the folks that continued in this path, like Figment and Bison Trails and Staked have done exceptionally well. I mean, it's yeah. a great business, I think. Uh, and then, but the, the good thing of that is I ended up like doing the seed run for Lido when I was verifying. So that was, uh, that was pretty good. Not too shabby, huh? Let me ask you this. Okay. So yeah, if you, well. what, you don't have to say specific numbers, but like what range did Parify get that Lido token at? Uh, I'm not sure it's public, but it was probably one of the best deals that I did by far. Like it was, it was a small round and it was a very well constructed round. And a lot of people ended up passing on that. I just thought it was, uh, you know, it got a lot of the large theorem holders involved, a lot of angels, a lot of like other projects. And, um, we were one of the few funds that like probably committed, if not the largest, the second largest check, Hmm. but it was, you know, um, I, I had, I had, um, known the team from my days when I started staking and these guys were the best. They were winning like the game of stakes competition, which is the cosmos like incentivized testnet to like attack basically the network. And, and that's how I knew the core Lido team. Cause I just thought they were the smartest guys to spin mm-hmm. up validators and had a very deep understanding of how to run like proper infrastructure. Um, and then like Constantine, I'm not sure if we've had him on this podcast. I think we may have, or I, I've been on a certain podcast, a few podcasts with Constantine. He's just a very, one of the smartest guys out there. He's one of the co-founders of Lido. Um, and early in Ethereum, early in Solana, like very open-minded uh, and has been involved in a lot of networks. And so that to me, again, it's always a team bet. And so these guys are probably, were the smartest and that's what gave me a lot of conviction to, to back them at the time. Nice. Um, so what does a fund like Parify do? How do you think about, we don't have to talk about Parify, but like a, a, maybe we'll generalize crypto funds. So how do you think about selling that Lido? Yeah, it's very like, it's a very good question. You know, risk management in crypto and managing portfolio is is quite difficult in the sense that, you know, there could be a time where a token just grows to a certain threshold where it becomes just prudent to size it down. You know, when you have a position that ends up becoming greater than 10% of your five, 10, 20% of your fund, then I think you have to, at that point, think more systematically of saying, you know, it's probably prudent to size down that position. Some funds do it, some others don't. Uh, in venture, it's it's different because say that you were benchmark, you did the seed round of Uber, and you had a you kind of could wait ten years, um, maybe try to sell in the secondary market. But once it IPOs, you have like this lockup, and you can sell after that. Uh, so obviously, there's like lockup considerations that you know you have to you know they just exist, similar like in traditional markets. At least a year, you're vesting over multiple years, three, five, seven years. So that's the more practical consideration. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's very, it is the hardest thing to do to be, to be fair, like managing that relationship with the team and saying, Hey, look, 
I've had difficult conversations where I say, listen, like, it's not that I don't like the project. It's just that it's grown up a, a point where it's just it's too big of a position. Uh, and at that point, it's like, okay, can you find like a natural seller and, and the way to do that? Sometimes a team wants to buy it back. Other times you find another fund that's willing to take over the position. And so, um, yeah, it just depends on your strategy, but it, it's really hard. I don't have a yeah. good answer to that. Yeah. Lido when like, I don't know what you like the live token price was in January of 2021. Um, I think at like two bucks and now it's back to two bucks. I'm curious, just I mm-hmm. obviously not financial advice, et cetera, so et cetera. Wild like, swings. Yeah. I mean, yeah, ran up to six or seven bucks and then fell down to like 50 cents and now it's back up to two bucks. Um, how do you think about allocating to an asset like, like Lido right now? Uh, well, Lido specifically, like in terms of like category liquid staking or just generally an asset that has that amount of volatility? Uh, not an asset. I'm not talking about volatility. I'm talking about like, do you, basically, do you like Lido right now at two bucks? I don't have a view on that. Uh, like, no. Cool. <laughs> Pushed it one step too far uh, on the uh, not investment, uh, not investment advice. No, right? listen, like <laughs> it's like you, you could ask. I get asked this question all the time, right? And my my object, my response is, why are you asking me this question? And the and it's what's your investment horizon? Is it three months? Is it one day? Is it three years? Is it ten years? And so I tweeted about this earlier this week. It's like, it's again. Uh, impossible to understand where even the majors are going to be in three months three months uh where is bitcoin going to be I love, let me rephrase be? my question because i'm not actually worried about the i'm not really asking about the price of lido here's here's my here's a better question lido is the dominant liquid staking provider if Correct. you want to go long liquid staking providers right now and you think liquid lsds are going to be a bigger thing in the future like lido feels like a pretty good play however they're starting to face a lot of competition like CBETH and like mm-hmm. rocket pool, rocket pool and, and things like that. And I'm, and there's going to be more and more. How do you think Lido fares versus other competitors in, in the future? I think the team, as I said earlier, is, is the strongest. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't looked as closely into rocket pool. They've had some issues. Um, as does Lido to be fair, like the, the, the question that has come up over and over is the amount of concentration in power that Lido has in terms of like it's become the second largest or the largest, the largest decentralized. Um, and the question is, should I, I, I'm of the mind that competition in the staking as a service space is very positive and healthy for a network because you never want, it's like a fair victory. If Lido captures 100% of the market, that would be a terrible outcome. You never want that to happen purely for decentralization reasons. And so for that reason, I want to see other providers succeed. And I want there to be variety because that it creates a very healthy competitive market. Now, Peter Thiel might look at me and laugh and say, what an idiot. You want to invest in monopolies, but not in crypto. I think yeah. you always want to have these like a few alternatives um, and just a distributed, um, a distributed set of options and, and like percentage of ETH staked in Lido should never be above, I don't know. 40, 50%, definitely not 50, but like, and so I think uh, there could be a smart contract bug in Lido. There could be a smart contract bug in Rocket Pool. And so I think for that reason, you never want to have too much 
a single player capture a disproportionate share of the market. Like, it's, it's, it's different, like, if it, like, Uniswap commands market share, a lot of market share. It's probably the protocol that has the most amount of market share across any category. Like, the number of swaps that Uniswap is capturing is just continue to dominate. Like, just people trade through Uniswap. It's the best liquidity. If Uniswap goes down, you can find alternate places, right? Like, of course, like, if there's, like, a bug and some of these liquidity pools get drained, it would be devastating. But not nearly enough as if there's a smart contract that, for whatever reason, truly locks up a lot of that stake ETH, and some of the, all the validators get compromised. Whatever that is, but like the like when you think about the relative like risk of some of these liquid staking providers going down versus another protocol in the whole entire crypto ecosystem, this is these are one perhaps the most important pieces um, that you. Yeah you want to really monitor. Yeah. Um, let's get into more news. But that we, being said, yeah, that being said, it, it's a very valuable service. Yeah. Um, Avalanche. We oh, So we have an Avalanche podcast dropping Monday, maybe? I think it, I think, I think it drops Monday. We'll see either Monday or Friday. Um, but we have an Avalanche episode. We did it with the two, uh, the founder, Emin Goon Gun, uh, and then also uh, John Wu, who's the president of uh, Ava Labs. Um, Pretty interesting episode. Um, so that drops on Monday. They just had a big announcement, which actually they did. They announced it right after we stopped recording. So, oh well. So we can talk about it with them. But they announced on Wednesday that they partnered with AWS to accelerate enterprise, institutional, and government adoption of blockchain. AWS supports Avalanche's infrastructure and DAP ecosystem, including one-click node deployment. It's pretty interesting. Through the AWS marketplace, AVAX popped 20% on the news. Um, of a partnership with AWS for deploying subnets. Um, super interesting to see this because people still underestimate the power of BD in crypto. And I think we've all been kind of surprised by Polygon's success in 2022. And what Polygon did is they said, we're going to own a niche. And the niche that they chose was big brands getting into crypto. And the big brands that they wanted to capture were like, I don't know how to describe this, but like the cool, like the Web2 brands, like the Disneys and Facebooks and things like that of the world. I think Avalanche is starting to carve out their own niche, which is like the large corporates who are maybe less sexy. So the way that they're doing this is by these partnerships with the with AWS. They also have a huge partnership with Deloitte, actually. Um, and I think you could see Avalanche in this bear market try to win the... Oh, also KKR, like they could try to win this, like the big corporates playing in crypto game, which I don't even know what big corporates would do in crypto, but like that, that I think it's interesting to see them try to carve out this niche. Yeah, the, to, tokenized funds, if you're tokenized KKR, funds. Or yeah, yeah, exactly. Apollo. I, I think it's interesting because Amir uh, comes from an academic background. He was at Cornell for a long time. Um, and, and then john i think i always see him on bloomberg like he's he's like a frequent host that gets invited there to talk about crypto and what they're doing so yeah it's interesting they're, they're carving out much more of that like we're the people should listen to the podcast but a lot of things we talk about there is how their subnets and it gives like a flexible kind of architecture for some of these players to like grow into and have like a sandbox environment baby steps to get into this wild world of crypto and so from that they kept emphasizing over and over in the podcast like we're we're a lot this this is very 
good from a regulatory perspective and regulatory compliance. A lot of these folks are really focused on that. And so, you know, whether you believe that to be true or not, you know, go listen to the podcast and let us know what you think. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's interesting because Cosmos, right? We had Zachy and uh, Jack on and they take a totally different approach. They're like, no single entity to generate the deals, no BD. I think that's philosophically good, but tactically bad. Like we had a, it was a company I invested in and uh, they're like, I was like, something just happened in the news. That means that it's a huge opportunity for them. I was like, guys, like turn on the fire, time to go. They're like, we don't really have a BD. I was like, let me help you set up your like, get the sales team going. Like I'll, I'll, I can help you guys out. Um, and they're like, we don't really have a sales team. Like we do things more grassroots. And I was like, all right, let me just line in the sand. Like that is an old school strategy in crypto. I'm sorry, but get a CRM Salesforce or HubSpot, get a marketing team. If you're they're B2B, like they, they're not really like a consumer company. I was like, get a, a CRM HubSpot or Salesforce, get a marketer, Drive the leads to your sales team. Go hire a BDR and yeah. SDR to go outbound. Set up leads for your account executives. If the lead is good, you flip it from a marketing qualified lead into a sales qualified lead. You push it down the pipeline. You close it. Once the deal is closed, you've got an account manager. I was like, come on, folks. Like, it's a tried and true yeah. model here. Uh, this is an enterprise software uh, playbook here. Tried and true model. Yeah. It's, so. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's difficult, right? Because it, it depends, right? It'd be BD and crypto historically, like okay, Ethereum, like what's the BD of Ethereum? It was like ICOs, I think. Just made people a lot of money and then everyone became really vested in Ethereum. Uh, but I think that as you're right to point out, it's different if you're a competing L one. It's an uphill battle and so you you need to have a lot of resources. That's why a lot of these funds are, a lot of these layer ones raise a bunch of capital to hire a BD team yeah. to to have incentives to attract developers to come over and build. Um but yeah, it's also tricky, right? Because you, if you're a front-facing crypto protocol, if you like, you can't really advertise. I mean, it's quite difficult uh, to advertise in Google and some of these other platforms. Like, they make it. You can you can advertise. You just can't advertise part. your crypto price. So, like, Avalanche took over ads on the New York subway, but it was like, come build on Avalanche. And right, right. my theory would be that they didn't actually use those to drive leads. It's that they then use those to then put that in a deck that they're pitching to Deloitte and AWS being like, being like, look how real we are. We advertise on the New York subway. It's a psychology thing. So I just, I think yeah, that's I remember a, watching yeah. uh, Gemini uh, buses around oh, yeah. New York. Exactly. For a while. Exactly. Um, anyways, I think that's something that changes this market is like, you have a product, you have a B2B product, go Go build that. There's a tried and true model here, folks. Like go Salesforce created it and thousands of other companies have implemented it. Go run the playbook. I mean, so. so let me, let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about building a CRM? Like we've like, you have all the, a lot of information from subscribers, people that are interested in crypto. You put on a conference, you have a research portal, like what's to stop you from adding and plugging in another service that says, Hey, let me connect leads here. So we, I mean, we use a CRM internally for like our sales. We have, there are two different CRM type things at Blockworks. There's the sales CRM. So like our sales team reaches out to Coinbase sure. or trying to sell them a sponsorship or something at a conference and that like that's all tracked in a CRM. And then there's a, the CRM for like content basically, which we don't have, but we're talking about building, which is, you know, Garrett on the podcast side might reach out to 
Constantine, you said, from Lido to get him on the show. Mm -hmm. Well, he has no way of seeing that someone else on the editorial team has just invited him or had just did a story on Lido and, and has a relationship. And mm -hmm. that someone on the events team has already reached out to him two days ago to invite him to speak at Permissionless. So that's the CRM. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like maybe you're talking about something different. We're more offering like this... You have like the guide points of the world and some of these like inf like research allowing people to connect with experts like uh yeah i don't know was this thought maybe it's a dumb idea but um yeah, yeah. i it's, guess you're at the hub of like reporting it's a but trend. Also research, i mean and then... they're like first party data and like information on your subscribers and audience is like a, is a huge trend in uh in like the media world is like what everyone talks about. And it's funny, we've been hiring a VP of sales and uh, there are two types of VP of sales we've been talking to. They're like crypto people who are maybe a VP of sales at another crypto company and they'd come over, but they don't know media. Or there's media people who maybe they're the head of sales at like Barstool or Axios or uh, Huffington yeah. Post or something. And they like really get media, and, but they don't know crypto. And the media people are like, Here's how you here's how you scale Blockworks. You sell into the agencies. You get like first party data. It's like it's a very different world of media. It's funny, yeah, yeah. So, anywho, um, talk about L ones and the strategies. I was talking to someone in um, who's pretty deep in the Japan uh, Japanese uh, crypto world. You ever heard of something called Aster? A S T A R. No. So I go, what do people build on in Japan? Like what's what's hot like are people building on eth are they building on polygon solana he goes oh he goes oh everyone builds on aster i was like come again like did i hear you correctly he's like yeah everyone builds on aster the, the l1 aster i was like sorry what and he's like yeah everyone builds on aster he goes avalanche and polygon are the two like second best and third best like they're they're fighting for that second spot right now but he goes Aster's super popular i was like all right so I go, it's aster.network, the website, the future of smart contracts for the multi-chain world. Aster is a scalable decentralized blockchain for the next web, big Web3 innovations. Uh, we provide infrastructure for building dApps with EVM and Wasm smart contracts, offering developers true interoperability with cross-consensus messaging and a cross-virtual machine. I was like, so I pull up their Twitter, like half a million followers, 50 dApps are already built on it. Talking about multi-chain world. Wow. How they do they have staking. I was like, man, that is nuts. Listen, listen to the backers: Polychain, Coinbase Ventures, Fenbushi, Hashkey, Huobi Ventures, DFG, um, GSR, Crypto.com Capital. Yeah. It's the big names in in Asia. Um, yeah, I just found huh. it very interesting. Well, whoever's listening out there from the Astro team, if you are, we'll have to have you on the I show. Found and it talk fascinating. About that Japan, no, Japan's yeah. a very like insular market like they uh you know it's uh it's pretty interesting yeah well here so we have a research analyst who just joined the team his name is ren and we we're talking about it in slack and he goes my japanese friend says it's by far the biggest blockchain in japan huge government support and another person goes aster question mark and ren goes yeah aster found founders japanese they're pretty big in the crypto community in japan so mm -hmm. it's interesting seeing like where the founders are from like avalanche actually their biggest uh, area of retail community, the biggest retail area for Avalanche is in Turkey. Why? Because Emin is from uh, Turkey. I mean, so, uh, yeah. I, I still can't pronounce his name, but yeah. anyways, there's your, there's your alpha about uh, Aster. Um, wow. 
we'll have to go check that out all right we got some layoffs from the exchange space tuesday morning brian armstrong announced a 20 percent layoff it's about a thousand employees as part of a restructuring effort uh payroll biggest cost to any company uh coinbase noted that this would cut operating expenses by 25 percent. this comes eight months after coinbase's first round of layoffs which was about 18 percent of the staff which back at the time is like 1100 or 1200 employees um uh what did coinbase's stock i think coinbase's stock went up on the news um it mm-hmm. let's see yeah coinbase's stock went yeah. up like 12 to 15 percent on the news which just goes to show that investors do not want growth at all costs right now they want companies to tighten the belts and that profitability tightening the belt will sacrifice growth as long as you are working towards profitability is what investors are starting to value uh we also saw yeah blockchain.com i don't know if you caught this news yet uh happened on thursday blockchain.com just laid off 28 percent. no surprise they had a huge lending business actually at one point they were one of the three largest institutional lenders in crypto it was them blockfi and genesis they owned the kind of lend to block uh to bitcoin miner they like crushed that vertical Mm -hmm. and so obviously they've gotten hammered um yeah yeah what else happened on i think this is the last bit of news and then we can wrap it up is ondo finance um i don't know if this was a pivot or a new thing but I remember them doing something different before this, but anyways, Ondo Finance uh, announced the other day that they're providing U.S. Treasuries and institutional grade bonds on chain as security tokens. Only KYC parties can purchase them, and they carry a hundred k minimum and a fifteen basis point fee. The team claims the product is going to be uh, used to serve DAOs. Uh, interesting to even see yeah, them about like Maker, right? Yeah, exactly. Like it, Maker would have probably used Ondo. Mako, yeah, yeah, make yes, exactly, exactly, Mako. There's your uh, collaboration. Yeah. Um, it was just funny to see them use the word security tokens. I was like, man, that feels like a 2017 uh, yeah. term. Um, STOs, baby. STOs. Yeah. Uh, interesting. This is the first. Uh, I ended up looking at this because I said, how did I miss this? Because I didn't look at the round. And it was led by Pantera. And uh, it was the first public, at least, uh, investment that Peter Thiel's funded. Really? Uh, yeah. 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 At least a token project or a project that signaled that they were going to have a token. And so, and then they did like a public sale uh, they raised like another 10 million or so. But I think mm. they raised like a 23 oh, you million know what? series B. Then they did a public sale of 10 million. I just searched for Ondo in my, in my email and I have a message from Paul Vera, Vera, uh, Pantera. Uh, did it? Vera. I forget how you pronounce his last name, but yeah, from Paul Pantera. at Pantera from August of 2021 about Ondo. He's like, yeah, it's a new, fixed income protocol hmm. that enables users to enter into both fixed yield and variable yield positions. So I think this was a bit of a pivot, but yeah, good for them. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I've heard and seen decks of similar approach that people want to like tokenize treasuries and have a, give people access to that. So um, yeah, pretty interesting use case, especially now where markets are and rates are. Pantera led a $4 million round for Ondo. We had participation from Genesis, DCG, which is Barry and Barry, CMS, and CoinFund. Interesting. That was the first. And then they did another one, I think, where Peter Thiel participated. Yeah. Okie doke. That's all you got for me this week. I don't know if uh, if there's anything else on your mind. No, no, no. Um, 
fairly interesting, good start of the year. Um, that's really it. I, I did read a really interesting book. Um, now that, you know, rates and or all the rage and all the talk, I read a couple of good books. Um, the first one that I that I read was The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest by Edward Chancel. Chancellor? Chancellor. Edward Chancellor. Pretty good, actually. Like I, has, I love reading, like, you, you said something interesting earlier on, like, historical, like just historical accounts of big movements, like the oil industry and how that developed. And, like, you know, and so this one was just a history of, of rates. And, you know, of course, at one point, like, it was, like, deemed, like, I mean, Sharia law, for instance, doesn't allow you to have, like, uh, interest. Uh, and historically, interest has been a pretty contentious thing. So I found that book to be pretty refreshing. It does also talk about this like obsession with targeting inflation of this 2% and how all like just giving you background on how all of that is coming to formation. And, it, um, and of course it claims that it's probably going to be one of the more destructive uh, policies uh, adopted by central banks this obsession with like a 2% inflation number, which I tend to agree with. Uh, but uh yeah, it was a good book that I read recently. So nice. I highly recommend folks. Uh, yeah. Talking about, series of books? talking about uh, Sharia, Sharia Law, I was on a... Did you ever use the platform Refinitiv when you worked in banking? No, nah, no. All right. So there are some big platforms that are like... Everyone uses Bloomberg Terminal, obviously, but there's also like FactSet and CapIQ. Oh, yeah. I use yeah. FactSet and CapIQ. Yeah. So FactSet, CapIQ. Refinitiv is another big one. They sold for $27 billion. Um they have, a, I'm doing research into just different data and research businesses because we have our research platform now. And I was on their product set and let me read you these products. It was... Sukuks. What is that? Sukuks, which is like these like com- like Islamic Sharia law compliant Oh bonds. yeah, exactly. So look at that. So it's I'm, like least, I'm on the website agreement. and I was like, oh, this is cool. They have their target profiles like really baked out. So listen, listen to the sectors. Asset management, central banks, corporate treasury, investment banking, market data, risk compliance, right? No surprise so far. Technology, trading, wealth management, and Islamic finance. I was like, oh, there man, so interesting. So then I click it and it's like, yeah, discover our Islamic finance services and solutions. Islamic market data, research and intelligence, Sharia compliant trading, Islamic content and events. Get data on Sukuk. I don't know. Sukuk. They're these like weird like work it's basically sharia compliant bonds huh. super interesting so i never knew yeah. about it. So I was, uh, yeah. yeah i have a, I, I took a class in uni and i have actually a paper where i studied like islamic finance and and sukuks and like uh yeah <laughs> probably more more not, stuff, stuff that i you know, it hasn't served me much, but uh, it was interesting to learn about it nonetheless. Um, I am reading it. So if, if anyone wants a paper on Sukuks, I can send you like, a <laughs> 28-page paper on Sukuks. I just started a new book, which is like a fun read. It's pretty short. It's like 250 pages. It's called, um, uh, what is it called? It's called Drugs in the Third Reich. I don't know if you've heard mm-hmm. of it, but basically the thesis is that the Third Reich, like Hitler and the Nazis, was was basically an altered... They were all yipped up on, on metamphetamines yeah metamphetamines. Uh, yeah exactly um and i'm i'm I, like, I just started it but basically i think the thesis is that like there there's this drug called pervitin where which was like a low dose uh methamphetamine which is like very similar to today's crystal meth 
And they, in the book, they're talking about like Hitler would take this thing called pervitin and uh, supplement it with barbiturates, Coke, mm -hmm. uh, even like steroids, sex mm -hmm. hormones. And they also had an early form of Oxycontin. So I'm like, mm -hmm. oh man, that is nuts. In, in, in the, well, you know what they attribute? There's a great, if people don't want to read the book, there's a history channel, I think, episode on this. And it talks about like in the kit that they gave soldiers of the Third Reich, they had a methamphetamine. And then when you, and you compare accounts of like Western soldiers saying these guys like Blitzkrieg, like this idea that like the Germans would just bulldoze through like battlefields and <laughs> were more efficient. Yeah, guys, they were on meth. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, so why'd you win the Why'd they do such a big advancement? It's like, uh, uh, well, because they were on meth. And like, why did the West won the war? Well, because like they ran out of meth. No, I'm kidding. Um, as, as people like, they're like, why did we get into a crisis? Well, there was an Adderall shortage in the Bahamas. And so that's why FDX went down. Right? <laughs> that's like the plausible theory. Right? Yeah, 90 years <laughs> later, no difference. So yeah, it's crazy. They said millions of this drug pervitin pills were shipped every week overseas. Yeah. I'm like, that is wild. That's crazy. So yeah. anyways, that's what I'm reading. Not really. Don't do, people. this is, this is advice. Please folks don't do methamphetamines. Uh, this is not an endorsement to go and do methamphetamines or Adderall or any uh, substance, mind altering substance for that matter. Thank, uh, thank you so, for the you know. disclaimer. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that is as good of a place as we're going to wrap it as we'll, uh, as yeah, we'll ever find guys. Thanks for, uh, yeah. thanks for listening. Um, yeah. fun, fun app, Santi per Thanks yeah, for joining. Uh, see you guys Here's next it, week yeah. for the avalanche episode.